Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. That was Kitisa, Exodus chapter 30, verse 11 through 34, verse 35. Obviously covers the Ten Commandments, sorry, Ten Commandments physically given, being broken, and of course, and obviously the, the, the golden calf and the issues that are brought up with that. So before we go into a spiel about this topic, and, and there are a number of subtopics in here, we probably don't get to everything, but uh, we come, we'll be focusing a bit of our attention today, uh, the distinction or the behaviors that God expects and it requires of the individuals that belong to him. So those distinctions, those behaviors where he'll be focusing his attention upon, and that's what we'll be focusing more of our attention on regarding those behaviors. What he expects of his people, what he expects of, of people who follow him, because it's not the same as he expects of others who are not following him. So before we go to the topics, any questions, comments, opinions, thoughts about this Torah portion? Those of you who are online, unmute yourself so we can hear you have any questions. Those of you in the audience, just raise your hand and we can answer them now. I may not cover everything today, so you ask it now, else it may not be covered at all. Go ahead. Go ahead, Larry. Um, uh, excuse me. He keeps saying that they were stiff-necked people, but I bet you that's one of the reasons he chose them, because he <laughs> knew they'd be tenacious to keep his, the Torah alive. The behavior. The generations. A, yeah, that's an interesting point. Uh, obviously, many thousands of years have lapsed from then till now. And, uh, Judaism, and they're still stiff-necked They're people. still stiff-necked. Judaism has been tenacious enough to hold on to and be stiff-necked in such a way to retain the actual text that we have, uh, because unlike all other nations, all other religions, text is not holy. It's just information. And so you can modify or tweak it as you see fit. And Judaism has been diligent. Like, no, 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 you don't modify anything. If there's a misspelling, you keep the misspelling. Whatever it is, don't tweak anything. Now, there are obviously errors along the way, but most of them are just minor spelling mistakes. So they've done really, really well keep, keep maintaining that. That stiff-neckedness has allowed us to have what God said reasonably accurate, uh, as opposed to, unfortunately, New Testament authors, which were dominated by, the, by Greek, uh, Greek uh, Gentile men, mentality, Gentile se- sequences, and that was whatever it said, and it didn't fit your situation, modify it till it fits it. And that's how, once we have so many varieties and, 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 and separations or distinctions or, or variances amongst all of our gospel and New Testament authors, which is disappointing. Um, so we kind of, that's hence a lot of debates about what they actually said or meant. Or it varies. But fortunately, the, the tenaciousness, the stiff-neckedness you point out of the Jewish way of life has been a blessing to those of us who now can say, okay, what God actually say? <laughs> and have a pretty good answer of what that is. Uh, hey, Alex, you have your hand up? Comedy of it, but I, and you probably heard this, but I, I saw online yesterday that Moses was the first one to download a text onto a tablet from the cloud. <laughs> yes. From the cloud. From the cloud. <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. That's good. Yeah, humor first. It's humor, humor yeah, first, yeah. Yahweh knows. Jesus had humor, so do we. We all have a humor. 
Yes, uh, the, the the plank of the eye thing, his comment, his Jesus comment. It's all it's all humor. God has a sense of humor too. He likes to laugh just like we do. Uh, it makes it makes him feel good, I think, too, to some degree. I should say like we do, but he does laugh too to some degree. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's it's interesting as far as the nature of the people, their stiff neckness. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why it was was valuable. But also at the same time, as Larry pointed out, that stubbornness was actually a blessing because of Abraham. Abraham was also stiff-necked or stubborn, so to speak, in the form of he will teach his kids. That's what God said. That's why I'm picking you because you're going to stay with it. You're not going to let go of it. You're going to teach your children, grandchildren the way I te- I'm following, telling you to command you to follow. And he chose Abraham because that was a big thing Abraham would do. They'd say, hey, I'm going to, unlike Lot, Abraham, I'm going to be diligent to make sure all my, my generations know who God is. And that's what God said. I'm, that's why I'm choosing you, Abraham, is because this is your character. And as a result, that same character trait persisted on to many generations, they, as Judaism has continued to be persistent in teaching what the Torah says. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying they don't make changes and alterations. They just don't make changes and alterations to the Torah. They change the Talmud and, and different arguments, but the Torah they leave untouched for the most part, which is good. Beyond that, but they are, other than, than, than that, they, they've, for the most part, has not, have not messed with the Torah's words reasonably well. Nothing's perfect, but they're reasonably well. So this Torah portion, there's a few things we're going to talk about uh, going along the way. Most of them, like I mentioned before, are behavioral or action-based concepts as far as how God anticipates or expects his people to behave and conduct their lives and their, and how their, their way of life. So this Torah portion starts out, obviously, as census-taking. Now, we have a few, a few of these details. I'll uh, draw some, uh, some lists up here in a minute, but we'll get there in a minute. We get toward the tail end of our, of our discussion today. So the census taking. Now, obviously, we have this ex- explanation that the census, you take a census, not to be, don't, don't count them directly. You take a half shekel as an atonement uh, counting cycle. Now, one of the uh, unique things about the census counting is it's not done directly, of course, because you, you can't count the person per se. You count, so they all drop off a half shekel and you count the half shekels to know the number of people as far as there are 20 years and up as far as their, their ages and such. One of the advantages of doing it that method is that the counter has no idea who did what or who's being counted. That's a blessing. Why is that a blessing? Well, what is the inherent problem with those who are wealthy compared to those who are poor? Wealthy command huge, vast amounts of power and control. So as a wealthy person drops off, think, or think, 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 think. <laughs> How the counters are, oh, that was the wealthy guy. We like him. It, it, it gives undue influence over governments and people who are in control. So wealthy individuals have undue power within their, hel- within their realm. Poor individuals have very little power. There's no real control over them when it comes to governments, how things work. So the ca- sense of counting, that's supposed to be a, a, type, a way of equalizing that each person is equal. There is no inherent greatness between someone who is rich versus someone who is poor. That, that, that you, 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 as far as the nation is concerned, you are the same. There is no blessing to be one or the other. In Judaism, they teach us the principle of, of, of cycles. They point out that a man is rich today, he might be poor next week. A man who is poor today might be rich next week. Things can happen, and you make you have the cycles of life of being very low, high, low again, high, and low again. That's a blessing to have those cycles. And as you said, they, they, ad, they advocate it very, very persistently. They say, hey, 
you want those cycles in your life. And why is that? Well, they point out it gives you perspective. What does it mean to be poor? Or what does it mean to be not listened to, not heard, ignored? What does it mean to not be ignored, to be paid attention to, to be listened to, to be valued? And when you have those perspectives of you personally experiencing both, the, of wow, how great and wonderful you are, to wow, how awful and worthless you are, and you experience on both ends, both directions, it gives you perspective on how to treat other people, how we treat our fellow man, fellow human beings. And so in Judaism, they're very big advocate. You want the ups and downs, the waxing, the waning of your life. Those are all blessings from God. And you have to prepare when you're wealthy to prepare for when you're going to be poor. And they anticipate that. Now, it's not that every human being ends up being poor. It doesn't, that's, not the, that's not their point. The point is, God may choose to make you poor next week, whatever it may be. And that's a good thing. You want the perspective of both. So, when you ha- so that's the normal or natural cycle of humanity, which we want, which Jesus says is a valuable thing. And I have to admit, it has legitimate ring to it, as far as how Messiah even points out the, 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 the widow with her two little mites, you gave everything, right? She's utterly poor, gave virtually no, nothing of intrinsic value, but she herself gave, it was all valuable to her. It was a great value to her. Compared to those who were wealthy, gave obviously what they could afford. It was intrinsically highly, highly valued. But then she gave more. The nature of, of, of that poorness does not affect her value, who she is and what she, what she has done. So that, that it's the nature of how that works, which is a good thing. So this is one of the few situations where the wealthy do not have more power or authority or illegal influence in the governments compared to the poor. The census counting. Now, that's not the case when it comes to wars or, or business dealings. They have lots of power, lots of influence. But at least when it comes to in intrinsic value of a person, a rich person is no more value than a poor person. They're all the same. Uh, the, the, there's, it goes from there, the topic goes from there, obviously, into the, 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 the like I said, these are different conduct behaviors which we're covering through. So before we leave the, t- the census concept, we'll leave that. This topic was nature of no person's more valuable than another person as far as the government is concerned. So, in your households, in our lives, what does it teach us? The basic principle, no one person's greater than another. I'm not greater than her. You're not greater than me. She's not greater than her. There's no intrinsic value higher or lower than anybody within our community, within our families, with our loved ones. makes a difference. With our coworkers, we're all of the same value. That means our opinions have the same value, even if they're ill-informed or overly informed. They still have the same value. Our actions have the same value. Hence, when we go before God, we can't say, well, I did this because I was poor. No, your actions are your actions. Or I did this because I was rich. No, your actions are your actions. It doesn't matter if you're poor or rich. What you do is what you do. And you're, as Hannah pointed out, in God's world, God's eyes, actions are weighed not your intrinsic inherent value in, in money or, or, or influence or power. It's your actions that matter. That's how he measures you. That's how we're all measured. It's the equalizer of all people because actions are just that. They're the same. What I do is what I do. All my excuses and rationales for it don't matter. What I do is what I do. That's how we're weighed. Yes. And that's why I also say that 
acts are are much more important than intention. Absolutely. Because your actions, because you could intend anything. I don't know anything about you, but I do know what you've done or are doing. I can see that. I can see, where, oh, this action resulted in that good thing or that bad thing. Now let's fix the action so we result in better. Uh, yes. Uh, it just reminds me that Hebrew is a verb-based language and it is all action it's all exactly it's all action that's and god is wise in doing that and we would be wise to learn from it our actions are really really important not where not our status not what we own or don't own not our not our not our, not our occupations but our actions matter yes and that's in contrast to greek paradigm which is all about what you think right <laughs> which is different it's the greek the mentality of of, of of thinking police so to speak <laughs> in many ways uh the, the greek the greek does have a thinking problem the thinking focus i should say not problem the thinking focus that's true and, and the greek thought for, from what i was told now this is now this is it's a it's it's a different world for me so i i don't i'm not not that i don't understand it but as far as i'm not in that religious world um the greek thought as far as that's why they didn't mind the concept of, well, this is an idol. It's not really a god. Well, it didn't matter because as far as they were concerned, an object is an object. It has no real important value. I can bow to it or not bow to it. It was the concept, to use it loosely, the concept behind the object what they were, they, they were focusing on. So their idol worship, sure, it's a, it's a rock. We all know it's a rock. It doesn't matter if it's a rock. The point is that in our minds, our heads, our thought process, our bowing down, we're not bowing down to the rock, we're bowing down to the theoretical power behind the rock. The rock just reminds us of that theoretical power. Hence why idol worship is totally rationalized in Greek with no, not even a second thought. It's really easy to do because it's always, oh, it's, it, it's the, the thought behind the object, not the object. While Jesus says, no, 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 it's the object. Look what you're doing. You are bowing down to a rock which it can't rock, it can't read, it can't write, it can't see, it can't talk. You have more power, you can do more things than the rock can do. Clearly, the rock should bow to you. You bow what's greater than you, right? That's the whole principle. You bow, with, you, you honor what's greater than you are. The rock should be honoring the man, not the man honoring the rock, because the man can do more. Um, but the Greek, their, their rationale process allows them to look completely past the obvious and see only the mental concept behind it. But Jesus says, no, no, no. We don't do that. And God pointed out, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> That's not an acceptable behavior. Uh, yes, Tammy. Add insult to injury. By the time of the Romans, by the time of Yeshua, you know, many times they would go to these temples and they would do their rituals and this and that. But many of those people, when you read the literature of some of these, um, like Cato or Pliny the Younger, some of these folks, they'll actually admit that they don't really believe in the gods at all because the gods, the, the, those they were so morally decrepit. It's like, why would I bow to these people? I'm more righteous than these so-called gods. But yet they would go to the temples and bow anyway, which is even worse. Right. So they know that even the concept behind what they're bowing is disgraceful. That they themselves have better conduct than and these they supposed bow gods. Anyway. They bow anyway. It's even worse. <laughs> right. The, the, the logic is absurd. It's funny to, to listen to or read about some of these guys. It's like you, you obviously can see the error in your in your methods, but yet you choose to continue on. So it's funny to watch. But so actions matter, and that's how you're weighed. So your status is not how you're measured. Humanity measures us in status, what power you've got, what wealth you have, what influence you have. That's how we measure one another, but God doesn't measure that way, which is a good thing. We don't want to measure that way. 
we can move on from there. This Torah, this Torah portion covers the washing of hands and washing of feet before you, when you approach the altar and come to the tent of meeting. Uh, this is one of the sources, not the only source, one of the sources where Passover at washing feet where Messiah washed the disciples' feet. And the act of washing their feet was a bizarre thing unless you put it in the context of washing a high priest's feet. So the high priest washed feet before, before it goes before God. So Messiah washing the feet of his disciples does two things. Obviously cleans their feet. That's a pretty obvious example. The whole, not all of you are clean concept, which Messiah brought up. But the other component of that is the inherent obvious registration. Wait a minute. You're washing my feet as if I'm a priest, which is what the priests had to do. You wash their feet. So Messiah is pointing out that I'm washing your feet, disciples. What is he now declaring them metaphorically or symbolically? The action is telling them you are like a priest now. Your conduct, your functionality is much like the Aaron's sons. So that's what the whole principle of. So it's one of the sources of why, why Messiah washed their feet at, at Passover time because this you are now being uh, treated like the actions are demonstrating you are like a priest. Now, you're not actually the physical priests. They, they already have those. But you're going to act like a priest. You're going to be a priest of Messiah and God as opposed to priest the temple, which is different, different, different principles. So that's just to be aware of that the cons of washing feet and hands every time you approach the altar or come to attend a meeting. The idea is that you are acting like a priest in this fashion. Uh, so that, that's it, it's it's i'm not going to go all the details of the different nature of, of why an altar and why the the temple to washing feet but that it's it's there it moves there from so we'll talk about next our next topic which is more valuable the in the prayer incense compounds now yeah they have anointing oils too for the unhealthy things but the prayer incense we'll talk about a little bit the the, the incense that aaron burns right he goes to the altar and burns it supposed to be a sweet incense it smells really nice makes a cloud smoke inside the holy holy area it's i don't know what it smells like i i know what each, by the way i know what each of these 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 spices smell like we have them at home we have the oils we have the individual spices i can't say what the combination would smell like because i don't really know he's using we have oils not the actual powder he's using physical powder here which has different volume so it may have different uh, aroma compounds. I don't really know. But the point is, each of the individual spices smell great. They're awesome smelling. They're, 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 they're very, very pleasant to smell. The individual ones are. And I put this as a concept of, so if, when Aaron burns these, what scent comes out? It's a mixture of all these different spices, right? Does the scent smell awful or smell pleasant? Now, intuitively, we think, well, if each individual compound smells nice, mixed them together, it's probably also going to smell nice. Now, it, I, there's going to be some, some burning uh, oxidation will change a little bit, but it's going to smell relatively nice, right? That's the general concept. But what does the incense offer, uh, altar symbolize? Remember what it symbolizes? It symbolizes one thing from all of us. It's called prayer. The symbol of the incense altar is prayer. When I put incense on it, most smoke, the idea is that it acts like prayer. Now, Revelation tells us this multiple different ways, as far as the story, as far as how the incense altar acts as the prayers of the saints. And that, that, that's its descriptive word. It's the incense altar prayer of the saints. So to ask, we have to ask ourselves, what do my prayers smell like? Now, mind you, God hates complainers. We know that really, really well. The Torah is full of that. Greatly despises complainers. 
So what are my prayers like? Are they complaints? Or are they good smelling? Are they sour, bitter, unpleasant? They smell nice. Are they full of praise and awe of God? I'm not, not, not telling you to volunteer your thoughts or your thoughts, but just think about it. When I am praying to God, what does it sound like? What are the words I'm using? Are they sweet? Are they pleasant for him to hear? Or are they complaints? God, why didn't you do this? Why is this happening? Why didn't you fix this, God? What's wrong? Why aren't you doing these things? Why aren't you fixing these problems? Why are you helping so-and-so, my, my wife, my daughter who's sick? Why aren't you interfering? Why, why, why aren't you doing something about it? Are those pleasant things? Are those complaint things? Those are complaints. Those are accusational. But God doesn't like complainers. So it's not a sweet-smelling spice, is it? So when we focus on our prayers and think about it, when God's asking for prayers, he, he, the symbol he used for that is a very pleasant mixture of many different kinds of spices, mind many different, different types of scents. So I'm not, there's not like one form of good prayer. There's multiple different, different kinds, but different types. Mix them together. What's he expecting from our prayers from us? Not the bitter complaining prayers, right? What would we expect from him? What would we want for ourselves? Do you want someone to burn skunk oil? <laughs> Say, here, here's my prayer. What are you going to do? You'll leave the room or, 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 or the city blocks, but how bad it is. It gets pretty awful, right? Or what should our prayer be like? The, 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 the sweet-smelling prayer that God has. Yes, Larry. My entreaties. No, supplications are not, nothing wrong with supplicating. It's like pleading, God, I need help. It's not that. That isn't the prayer. It's the complaining style that I want to point out because when the Israelites start complaining, God says, oh yeah? Yeah, let's just knock off a few dozen or maybe a few thousand. 20%. That just kill them all. <laughs> just get rid of all of them. They're not worth saving. The complaining prayers is when I focus. Don't. So I, I, I'm guilty of that. I'm frustrated with something. It's not working right. God, why aren't you helping me? Why are you fixing this problem? I'm guilty of it. I know it's a complaint. That's the kind of prayer God wants to hear. That was it. It's the kind of scent He wants sent up to Him. So think about that in mind when you're praying. We think about it. Okay, what is what? What does God want to hear from us? Mind you, He knows everything. That he doesn't know about. That he's not aware of your frustrations, your difficulties, your problems. He knows them. But how do you present them to him? So just think about that for when, you, when you pray about it. Mind you, because conduct matters. How you act, what you do matters. That's what he measures us by. He measures everybody by that, by that measuring tool. Now, not saying we compare it to each other. That's what we're discussing. But God compares our actions to our inactions, what we do, what we don't do. Not me to you or you to her or her to her, but just what we do ourselves, those are how we're measured by. Now, go back to our conduct rule. So, in, in rule, con, the, the, the process of conduct, he obviously includes in, in, in this chapter 31, the discussion of your know, Shabbat, taking your day of rest, the time off, which you're not going to be working this day. It doesn't matter how, what your work is. He even points out that artwork, how many of us like artwork? Watching it, seeing it done, it's beautiful, or whether it's end result. Uh, whatever the case would be, it's beautiful. Whether it be music, whether it be uh, a physical uh, painting, or whether it be uh, even designing something, whatever, it's all artwork, different forms of artwork. We all like it. It's beautiful. However, God points out, artwork 
working on art projects are still work. Well, but it's fun. Well, yeah, it may be fun. We're discussing fun. He didn't say fun. Work can be fun too, but it's not about fun. It's about work. And God is the ultimate of artists. Look outside. Have an artist make those. <laughs> I want to see him make a tree that does that. They can make a painting of one, a sculpture. I want to make a tree that lives, a gross, you know, puts out blossoms, fruits, and make it look that pretty. But that's art. And God did that. He says, yep, I'm resting. I'm not going to work on the seventh day. Even that's something that beautiful, I'm still going to rest. So even God points out the ultimate of artists. Yeah, you're going to rest. Take it off. Take your time off. Don't pursue your own way. You're going to rest today. So again, conduct matters. We have the idea of the census point out that, hey, your, your status makes no difference. You're equal of all forms. doesn't matter if you're uh, young or old, a rich or poor, you're all equal status. Secondly, your conduct, what you do, matters. You're measured by your conduct, so use that as your measuring tool to determine, is this a good thing for me to do or a bad thing for me to do? And of course, your complaints and prayers are also based on your conduct. Are you, are you complaining your prayers? Are they pleasant or are they unpleasant? These are all conduct uh, uh, processes. There are a few details. I won't go into all of them, but we're going to go into this concept of where the golden calf shows up. So the golden calf, that is a severe conduct problem, isn't it? Now, the people had agreement. They had an agreement to say, hey, 40 days earlier, they got the whole Mount Sinai, the, the, the big cloud, they got to hear the Ten Commandments, the blasting, the trumpets, all the big noise, the fire, the whole works, petrified to death. Okay, I don't want to go near this thing. This, 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 this being scares the daylights out of me. I'd rather hide back, give me back you know, a couple thousand feet. Moses, you go. You, you go up and down, but leave us out of this thing. We'll, we'll, we're safer to do on our own. Well, that's a conduct. You are agreeing to a specific type of conduct. You're agreeing to follow the Ten Commandments. And one of the first fundamental ones is know that he's God. You have nothing else in front of him. No, no other image, nothing else, nothing else uh, result, resulting in that. Well, Moses is up there, of course, the golden calf is produced. Now, I won't go into Aaron's concept, the whole... I threw gold in and calf popped out. We've discussed that before. That doesn't work, really. We, we already know that's a, that's a cop-out answer. And Moses obviously pointed out, that's absurd, Aaron. Come on. <laughs> you, you exposed them. You did this. This is your fault for making this, allowing this to occur. Um, but I want to point out a few details for you um, in, in, in this process. So the people, it says they, 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 they danced, they, they did um, uh, sacrifices to this calf and such, and they went up to revel. Now, reveling the, the, the cons, the word, the, 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 the Hebrew word there, the, it includes both idolatry, lasciviousness, and murder. They're all grouped together. So anything those things were all grouped together is what they could, could have been doing at that time. And hence why Jesus argues that's probably where Aaron was afraid because murder is inclusive of revelry. So he was afraid that he may be the one who was killed if he doesn't do something. Uh, yes, Alex. I wanted to go back on, back to the uh, food preparation for yeah. Sabbath. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm going to assume that back in the day, let's say 1940s Yiddish kitchen, uh-huh. cracking open a pistachio was work. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, I had waffles this morning, and mm-hmm. I popped them in the toaster. It's not work. We're in a bit of a different world. So there's a real, you know, the, the old dirt now. Uh-huh. And, and of course, what Yeshua said, which is, hey, don't get caught up in the language of it. Just obey the law. Obey the law. So, 
Uh, interesting, this topic has been brought up by many times, many different people from different, different perspectives, right? What is work? What's not work? The, the act of driving from home to here while well, you, you turned your car on, you drove along, and it had your know, fire was being built because obviously combustion engines, unless you're an electric engine, combustion engines have, even electric engines have sparks. But anyway, as far as going, you're, you're actively creating uh, uh, energy at uh, the heat, all, all the stuff that the, the blades, what is work? Turn the lights on or off, using the hot water, turn water on or off that runs pumps, a lot of things, all, all, all of them forms of work, a different form or another, whether it's yours or other. So it's, 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 if you use a concept of work in the strict definition of work, like the English word work, the act of moving is work. Anything that movement, if you're applying a force over a distance for a period of time, so that it moves, is work. Now, if I push against the wall as hard as I want, I put thousands of pounds, the wall doesn't move, it's zero work. But once the wall moves, it's now work. So that's the strict definition of physics and, 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 and mathematics. That is what work is. Now, in the case of, uh, of the Bible, it's concerned, it's concerned occupational work, things you actually do for a living or make money at or make progress at. There, so in the, in, in the principle of work, for example, um, as, we, as Messiah points out, the Levites had to work every, every Shabbat. They had sacrifices to offer. They had lights to, to light. They, there were still tasks to do. And so what the kings did was they would, 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 would rotate them through, through cycles. It's your turn for the next couple of weeks. Then you have so many weeks off, somebody else takes in and takes the job. So you have your times off for Shabbats and your times you're working on Shabbats. And it varied from, from season to season who was doing what. So that's how they coped with or dealt with the different work problems that the high priests and the Levites had to still work even on Shabbats. So how do you handle these problems? Well, this is how they did it. They did it in a rotational cycle. Uh, Solomon did the same thing when it came to works, work camps. He said, okay, guys, or we would use the military today, same principle. So you're on for a certain number of months, and then you're off for a certain number of months. And you're back on for a certain months. So you have time which you're working and the time which you're not working because sometimes you have to work even on for example war you can't take shabbat rest hey guys <laughs> sunset hey put, 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 your, put your swords down well, the maccabees tried it. It, it didn't turn out well exactly the maccabees attempted it ended poorly um so okay this doesn't work that way so hey reality is when you're when you're active dudes that you don't have a choice to matter just chill out take care of the problem but strive to go back to the other non-working point when the cycle is done as opposed to continuing on the, 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 the cycle. Well, I worked last week, I'll just do it again this week. Or the week after, well, it's another new problem. It's another problem. If you wait for the next problem to show up, guess what? They show up continuously. The next project, oh, there's always another project. So if, if you don't force it, no, I'm not, I'm going to make the conscious decision. I'm not going to work because I don't need to. It's not absolute. I'm going to make it not happen. Therefore, I make it not happen. Uh, yes, Timmy. But at least acknowledge that you are working on the show. Right. Don't pretend you're not. Don't pretend you're not or right. make excuses. But just, you know, acknowledge that you are working on the Shabbat, even though there is a higher purpose to it, like if a Levite in the temple or whatever, right. there's a higher purpose to it. Or if you were a doctor and you get called in on your pager because right. there's a heart transplant that needs to happen. Exactly. You know, acknowledge that. Yeah, you know, I'm having to violate the Shabbat. Because this, a scenario has come up that I have to do this. Yeah. Now, if you want to violate the Shabbat every Shabbat for years and years and years... And you uh, deaden yourself. You kind of deaden your yeah, soul after you, yeah, a while. Yeah, you, you, you have no interest in actual Shabbat anymore. Uh, something on, oh, Pamela, you have your hand up. Go ahead and unmute yourself, Pamela, so we can hear what you have to say. Your, your definition of revelry really yes. surprised me. So I was looking up in the dictionary, 
And I don't see anything associated with it except like boisterous festivity. Right. But those other words, one was murder and I didn't catch the others. Yeah, so idolatry, lasciviousness, and murder. So it is the Hebrew word for that, for revelry, as opposed to the English word. Um, The Hebrew word is inclusive of those things. Now, not exclusive. So it's not like, for example, if you do not commit murder, therefore you're not going to be revelry. No, no, no. That revelry, the the Hebrew word is, is inclusive, that it could fall under any one of those types of categories. In the case of murder, don't think of it as like premeditated murder, more of like a hey, we were playing around, goofing off, and so-and-so, he pushed too hard, he fell off the bridge, and he, 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 splat, he splatted on the ground and died. That's the kind of murder they're referring to. Not, a, not, a, not, not, a, not an intentional, hey, I want to go murder people. It's a, it's, a, it's a killing that was either partially out of, out of neglect or, or out of, out of mis, uh, mis, poor conduct that resulted in, in that kind of scenario. It's, it's, it's unrestrained, no self-control, no, 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 no overall governance of your actions. That's the concept of what was referred to as revelry. That's why Moses used the word exposed. When he said, Aaron, you exposed them. The word he chose for exposed means you, you, you removed all self-control of all conduct. So there's no longer a governing body of consciousness or morality controlling anyone. And if you know, as well I do, when you have a scenario where situation where there's there's zero morality zero right and wrong and you put a bunch of people together and there's nothing they can do that's wrong what is the end result usually nothing good there's usually death there's mayhem there's misery there's suffering because there is zero wrongness and that's that's the that's the concept of the revelry combined with moses explanation you exposed them, uh, uh, para. You, you 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 exposed them, Aaron. You you made them to where there is no longer a governing limit on what they can or cannot do. That's the concept behind it. And I'm not arguing they're all murderers. I'm not saying that of sort, nothing of the sort. The point is that murder can be included with inside this groupings. Depending, I don't know what they were doing. I wasn't actually there, obviously. So I'm not saying they were that necessarily, but it's inclusive of that process. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, uh, go ahead. Well, getting back to um, the calf. Yes, the calf. So the children of Israel were not, they were in slavery in Egypt. Correct. Did they have worship? Did they have worship? Explain what do you mean? What's your question? Were they meeting? Did they have Shabbat? Did they? They not likely would not have had a Shabbat because they had to. Because in the process of traveling from Egypt to the mountain, they, they had to be taught what Shabbat was. So the whole the manna process. They had to rest. The, the number of times they rested matches one Saturday every week till they finally reached their final station. So likely God was teaching them what Shabbat was. But as far as their worship, I really don't know. I, it, 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 I know in modern day scholars, when they look, I hear scholars are a really bad word for it. Modern day opinionists, when they look back about uh, what they thought or imagined Israel life in Egypt, they imagined it to be more along the lines of, uh, of, 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 of what we would think of like a, mon- a monotheistic culture shoved inside of a polytheistic culture that they would be looked down upon as being you know a subhuman or, or in, inferior because they had only only one god but that's modern day opinionists i won't say scholars opinionists putting their projection back you know five thousand years four thousand years to show what they think life would have been like 
I, I'm not, I wouldn't say this is the case because they so readily adopted a calf, which was one of Egyptian gods, very quickly. So I imagine they probably had a polytheistic bent as well. Uh, hence, God would spend so much effort reiterating over and over again, there's one, I'm one, there's one, not 10, not three, there's one, not 50, not 100, there's one, just me, I'm all alone, there's no one but me. He kept saying over and over and over again, I think, to drill it into their heads, there's only one, as opposed to what you're familiar with the Egypt, which would be multiple ones. But I don't know for certain. I'm, I'm speculating, trying to put motive in God for us, why he kept reiterating, there's one, and I'm alone. There's no one else around. It's just me. He kept doing it over and over again to the Torah and the prophets that I suspect he probably believed or was under the impression that the people weren't understanding, that there was just one. So that would imply that when they came in Egypt, they must have probably thought there were many or had some interaction with many beliefs. I'm not positive because I wasn't there. So just doing the calf was what they knew. Right. It's what they're familiar with. Their, their comfort zone. Uh, comfort way. It wasn't comfort an way. outright act of um, disobedience. Right. So it's what, and before we started today, we talked, Larry here brought this up as far as before we, we, we got our spiel going. We got this exact topic, this whole, what was the motive behind the people themselves? And we looked back, oh, well, if I was there, I would never have done that. You're lying to yourself. Of course you'd have done it. Everybody would have done it. That's what, that's what you're familiar with. As opposed to an act of true rebellion, it was a, I don't know what to do. I'm lost. Then I'm going to try to follow something that I can feel, feel some comfort, some security in. Hence, the golden calf. Now, I want to say, say they were all rebellious or not rebellious, but they were not, um, they were not actively, in my opinion, trying to do something evil against our God. Since they didn't have the tablets yet, they, didn't, they couldn't be rebellious. That, well, they had the words. They heard the words okay. tablet, though. They did hear that. So you, you're right in one way. They didn't have the physical written down copy, but they did hear it. They okay. heard it the 40 days earlier, orally heard God speaking the Ten Commandments. They, they, they knew what they said. Okay. So they, they, that part, they, had, they did know. There was kind of a, you could argue how well they understood it. Maybe they didn't, they didn't write it down. I don't know <laughs> while God was speaking, but there is some question there. I do, I do grant you that there could be a, uh, a lack of good communication or standing from the leadership of Israel to the individual people. That's totally fair. You could argue someone say, well, what, what does that mean? And then not be able to explain it well. Hence, they migrate off into something else. That totally is a legit argument, okay. but I don't know. Fair enough? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, so back to the calf thing here. So this calf issue. So, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, Larry, did you have that? No, I was, I was talking about the, I was going to talk about, in somewhere in the Mishnah, there's a tradition that there was a murderer there, and we think of Aaron as being a wimp, but they, that, the guy, her? Her, yeah. It was his buddy, and it was also the guy that held. Yep, Moses' arms Moses up. Moses' yep. arm up. Yep. They, they, the tradition says, you probably know it, right? Yeah. Tradition says that he, that he was he killed. Was, he they, was offered. They went to him and said, make us, because he was the guy that was, had apparently, his grandson was the guy that designed all the stuff in the temple. So he was probably pretty facile himself with that. Mm -hmm. So they went to him first. And they, he they refused. They said, make us a God. And he said, no way. So they and killed him. They killed him. Right. Moved to Aaron next. Right. I, I read that same, that same story this morning. It's like, oh, yeah, last night, what it was. Because I remember the story from, the, from, the, from previous years that, in, in Judaism, in the Mishnah, which is a story made, it's made up stories, but they're things that they put together to try to explain 
confusing or odd scenarios. And one of the stories is because no one knows what happened to her. He was there he with Moses there. and then he just never gone. Again. Never heard from him again. What, what did he go? He, he was there. He was obviously a good man working with Aaron and Moses to accomplish something positive. He worked with them regularly. That was a good thing, but you never hear of him again. And so in Judaism, they argue, well, why not? He was younger than Aaron and Moses. What happened to him? And so they, theory, they theory, theorize that one of the reasons that made Aaron afraid was the unrestrainedness of the people. That if you don't do this, we'll kill you like we did with her. Hence the, the theory that, 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 that her may have been one of the individuals killed, if he was killed, uh, at this time. But we don't know for certain. So once again, it makes us put ourselves in his position right. instead of us judging him. Look right. at that wimp. Why did he do that? What, right, exactly. What's the he's, a, he's a high priest. What is he doing here? Right, 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 right. Exactly. So it's the same, same, same what, what was this? What was he comparing his life to? Hey, if I resist, I die? Or if I don't resist, or, yeah, what, where was, where was his, his mind? And I do not know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's speculation, of course. But that's one of the reasons why in Judaism they argue that Hey, murder's inclusive. You can, you can offer human sacrifices and still be considered revelry or, 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 or this, this, this poor, unrestrained behavior is inclusive of human sacrifice. Uh, uh, Jeff, you have your hand up. One interesting thing is that perhaps this is a setup for the example for Yom Kippur when the high priest is offering um, covering for himself. So this would be an example for all high priests to come to basically think, well, you think you have nothing to cover up for? Here's the first high priest. He had something serious to cover mm-hmm. up for. He should have been killed in that, but God basically covered over his egregious misstep. That's so an interesting point. You should think, yeah, you may have something to cover up as well. That's a good point. Yeah, it's like first bull to, to, to do it, right? Yeah, which is actually Aaron made a bull, right? <laughs> it could be that that's just a, yeah, that that's totally good, a good point. Um, yeah, so it's it's very well possible. Even Aaron, the greatest that we think of as far as high priest, had some serious weaknesses and failures, and hence so do we. Along those lines, regarding this topic of this 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 conduct, there's two things I want to bring up to you regarding this. So first of all, God's in immediate reply, when God's up there and Moses is up there on the mountain, God's reply is, tells Moses, release me so I can kill them all. Now, I've asked you a question. Don't answer, just think about it. In what way was Moses binding God? Binding him. God said, release me. Unbind me so I can go kill them. And Moses doesn't unbind God. He doesn't release him. Well, how can that's bizarre? How can a man bind God? That's absurd. Nothing can bind God. These are God's words. <laughs> God's using the words. Release me so I can go kill them all. I'll start over with you. Get rid of these people. But Moses does not release God. Moses argues instead. I'm not going to release you, God. I'm going to argue this point. And Moses, of course, brings up his point. Uh, God, if you kill them, this is your nation, therefore it's your loss. You're the one who loses your own nation. So you, you can't kill them. That's his first primary point. His second point, he takes out that uh, God is, you are the one who actually took them to Egypt because God's saying, these people you took out of Egypt, I'm going to go kill them. Moses said, no, 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 no. 
I didn't take them out of Egypt. God, you took them out of Egypt. They're your possession. And by taking them out, you you designated them to be your possessions. They actually belong to you. So uh, you and you and you said by doing so, you would choose them as a method to reveal your identity to the rest of the world. So God, see two points. Went out. So first of all, uh, God, if if you kill them, it's your loss, not mine. I'm not. It's not my problem. It's yours. So you're killing your own stuff. It's like. Cut it off your nose to spite your face. That, 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 old, that old saying, right? Uh, I'm so mad at this thing, I'm going to break it. Well, it's yours to begin with, so now you don't have it because you broke it. You were mad. You lost your temper. It's your own fault, your irrational reaction kind of thing. And so, in, 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 and so, God, so Moses brings up these, these, these four main points. The first one, it's God's loss. If he kills him, it's his problem. Uh, second, that God said he would use them to reveal himself to the rest of the world. So if you kill him off, what will you have revealed about yourself? Well, that each will be able to say uh, he's too pathetic. He had to kill him off. <laughs> That's what you're going to reveal. The world will know you as, as, as a mass killer as opposed to the actual one who saved them. And then uh, also his fourth point was, God, uh, you promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you would save these people and bring them out. So it's your promise is that you are backtracking on if you fail to do this. So Moses does not release God to go kill him off. And God relents. Okay, I won't. So it's a strange scenario. So why God use the term release as, as if he's been locked up or bound somehow? I'll give you the answer. It's pretty obvious. The same principle when God approached Abraham with Sodom and Gomorrah. The point of releasing versus unreleasing, what can the prayers of a righteous man do? Anything, a whole lot of things. So to release God, what's a righteous man have to pray about? God get rid of them. Guess what? The righteous man, whoever it was, just released God. On the other hand, if you don't want to release God, say, God, no, please save them. The righteous man just bowed, just, just bound God. I'm not bound in like saying locked in chain, chain and, and, and ropes, but the point is that the idea of you're, in, you're trying to intercede on behalf of someone who doesn't deserve interceding. You are attempting to bind God to save someone that may not deserve saving. Messiah did that. He did that, did he not? He bound God into saving people that don't necessarily deserve saving <laughs> by, his, by his conduct, action, and instruction, his entire purpose for being. So Abraham did it. Moses did it. Messiah did it. What do we learn by righteous man? What's your job? Bind God to saving those who don't necessarily deserve saving. Now, is that easy? No, absolutely not. The self-control is tremendous at times. But that's what binding God means. The keys to heaven, so to speak, in another way, which, which, which uh, was Messiah, to Messiah had said, even the keys to heaven, what you bind on earth is bound in heaven, loose earth is loose heaven. That's the same principle. What you pray for for salvation on earth will be prayed for salvation in heaven. What you pray for condemnation on earth will be condemned in heaven. That's the nature of how you bind or loose something. That's what it means to bind or loose. So that's what God's using. He's using that phrase on purpose, not because he's locked in chains and handcuffs. The Moses has tied him to the ground, so to speak. It's, it's, it's the nature of will you intercede or would you not? Uh, yes, uh, Jeff. Although there is the interesting caveat that the Messiah brings out is that uh, be very careful if you say, you fool. Because if you are condemning somebody, basically asking heaven to condemn somebody, right. 
but they don't deserve don't the deserve condemnation. condemnation right. Look out for <laughs> yourself. <laughs> You're not so much the righteous man, are you? <laughs> So this and H is funny thing if I was look at, uh, looking at these this, this of interceding, but uh, in, in in the people's in the, uh, God obviously relents to Moses' argument. Now Moses goes down and tries to fix the situation himself. This is a profound point when Moses what, what methods he does. He chooses a particular way to correct the people. And one of the ways was he takes the the calf, burns it and grinds it up dumps it in the water, makes them drink it, right? He says, oh, that you know, sounds odd, but yeah, okay, that's the good for Moses, right? That should spark remembrance in your heads. When, if you ask a question, when a man believes or questions his wife's conduct, whether or not she has been faithful or not, he suspects she has not been, what's the main tool he has at the time of the Torah to go by, he would take her, go up to the temple priest, and say, I suspect that she has been with another man, that she's my wife, and this is a bad conduct. Why well, we correct this? This is a, this is a, this is a death penalty case. And the priest, because they, they don't know, they're not sure, they write the words of a curse regarding it's written on a Torah. What that, that if she has been the man that her thigh wrought out and her, you know, her innards fall apart, she just dies and rots there before them. Write a piece of paper and take the ink, scrape it off in some water with some dust from the, from the ground of the temple and let her drink it. Now, if she's guilty, theoretically speaking, the cursed words would enter her and she internally rots and perishes. If she's innocent, the curse words enter and they come back out again, no problems. That's the theory behind the Torah checking for a jealous husband and his wife. Now, I bring this up because Moses does not know what each individual person is guilty of with regards to the golden calf. But yeah, he can see the people in front, the most obvious offenders. What about those who are just complicit or not complicit, but we're questioning. We just kind of watched only. Didn't, didn't do anything. Didn't, part, didn't say, didn't join Moses' side, but didn't join the calf side, but just watched. Does Moses know who each one of them are, what they all did? No. God does, but Moses does not. Now, God's solution was kill them all. <laughs> that was his solution. Kill them all. They're not worth saving. <laughs> but Moses, well, I don't know which one did what, but he obviously with the sword, they, did, they killed a few thousand that way, but reality is there were thousands of people. Who did what? Who's truly guilty? Who's partially guilty? Who's, who deserves what punishment? Moses doesn't know. But taking that process, that theory, that, that symbolism between the two different sides of when you have a jealous, un, you, have, you suspect your wife because you're jealous, but you don't know. Well, Moses, can you do the same thing with the golden calf? Put it in the powder, put it in the water, make them drink it. If it curses them, hence a plague and they die, they're guilty. If they drink it, the plague and they don't die, something happens, that person was innocent. It's the same principle. Now, I bring that up because shortly after drinking the water, what happened? A whole bunch of random people died in plagues that followed that sequence. Now, not everybody, a large number of them, 
And Moses says, forgive them, God, or read any books. No, 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 I will write and erase people out of my book because God knows who did what. And then a certain number, we don't know how many, died for the plague that followed. And I suspect, because that same principle is being applied for the unfaithful wife, I suspect there's probably a mental symbol or a metaphor or a spiritual similarity between these two events, which then brings us the ultimate conclusion. If this process for checking the unfaithful wife is to find out whether she committed adultery or not, then what is the same concept spiritually, which we all know this by heart, when you're worshiping another god, is a form of spiritual adultery. Hence the connection between the two of them. So from a spiritual adultery, God, Moses, used the ground calf water powder mixture and say, drink this, we'll find out if you're spiritually guilty or not. Well, some were, some weren't. Same to the wife. We don't know if you're physically guilty or not. Drink this process, we'll see if you physically are guilty or not. Some probably were, some probably weren't. I don't know how many people were tested, it doesn't matter. But the symbols are the same. So again, what does it matter? Your conduct matters. And Moses doesn't know all their conduct. He was up on the mountain for some period of time. I don't know how, what they were doing before that. He doesn't know who died, who didn't die. He doesn't know what the details are. But he knows, obviously, when he showed up, there were certain people who had poor conduct, and he could kill them immediately. They were obvious. You can see them when they got the swords out. They just killed off the bad people that were obviously right there and readily seen by the human eye. But the ones who were complicit mentally or, or past or were just hiding by the sidelines, you wouldn't know about them because we can't see inside of a person's heart, mind, or soul. But God can, hence the tool that you use to do this. So it brings back this concept of, of how to check for adultery, which implies that God considers this type of adultery. Which makes sense, right? Worshiping other gods, it is type of adultery. You, 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 you are, you are processing yourself this one or, no, or that one or, or this over here or maybe the one over there. You, you, you are jumping from use from loosely spouse to spouse or God to God in whatever you happen to be doing. So again, as we started started out, conduct is how you're measured by. So what you do matters. That's how you're measured, how you're judged, how God determines whether this person's doing something right or doing something wrong. What is the conduct? And that's how we determine conduct. That's how God determines conduct. Now, we don't have a physical evidence God telling Moses, this is how you're going to do this. God didn't sit there and tell Moses, you will, you will take the calf and ground it up. He didn't say, he goes, you'll take your swords and kill them off. We don't have any record of that. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But we don't have a record of, of God specifically stating so. But the fact that he reuses that same concept for checking the adulterous wife does bring us some similarity. There could be a connection between the two concepts. And of course, obviously, we have Hosea, which blatantly states, that's what it is. <laughs> Hosea answered the question. That's what adultery is spiritually, is worship of the gods. Whether it's idols or physical, that's what it is. So we have the, the true answer for what comes out of the, the, the minor prophets that Hosea discusses that topic. Um, before I, I come to our conclusion, we're going to write down up here on a, on a, on a little piece of paper here uh, regarding this, this Torah portion. I think I want to discuss a few more details. Uh, when they committed their adulterous act, with spiritually speaking, what was the, how they try to fix it? What methodology did the people choose to fix or try to repair the relationship with their true spouse, their God? Well, the first task was 
strip them of their ornaments, all their decorative stuff, their earrings, whatever. Strip them down to just just themselves, bearing yourself as what you actually are. Demonstrating to others, to God, what am I? I am what I was born as. So my accoutrement, my little detail, my bling, <laughs> set aside, get rid of it, right? Because that's that. Those are all distractions. What am I actually? Quince, strip them. Now this principle of stripping yourself down to your basics. I'm not saying going around naked. I'm talking about having. There's nothing fancy about you. Nothing is truly what you actually are. That principle is how we how how we get the concept of what fasting was about at the time was Messiah and beforehand. That fasting was the type of making yourself very very low and miserable, and not temporarily so. I mean, for example, we can all fast for an hour. It's easy. You can fast for a couple hours, right? That's easy. It takes really no effort. We sleep and can do that. We can do it in our sleep, literally. <laughs> okay, that's easy, right? Uh, but fast for a long time is when your body starts realizing toward the tail end of your fast, whenever you're going to break it, that, oh, this is hard. I'm miserable. I'm reminded continuously of my misery. Well, that's the nature of the whole idea of repentance. What good is saying, I'm sorry, and move on and go do something else? I don't know about you, but my mind remember it for a few minutes, and then I forgot it already. Maybe your mind doesn't, but mine does. Mine will forget rather quickly. So if I'm not continuously reminded that I need to watch my conduct, what's going to happen? I'll forget. I'll go right back to whatever I was doing before and not realize, oh, whoops, I was supposed to stop that. Or I was supposed to do it anymore. Or I forgot. I, I was supposed to be, be repenting for whatever reason. I got distracted by my work or my kids or whatever the case. I got distracted by life. So the nature of wearing the sackcloth, which you get in a, a Torah uses over and over again, because sackcloth is extraordinarily uncomfortable, right? Try walking. Uh, I've never done it myself, but I have picked up a sackcloth once. I would never, ever, ever want that on my body, <laughs> okay? I can touch it with my hands, and then I ought to wash my hands when I'm done. It's so, un, it's so awful. I cannot imagine putting clothing out of it. But if you're wearing it, as many people had done so, you know, so we have some kings that have done so as well, their form of mourning and, and sorrowful, what is it continuously doing to your mind and spirit? It's reminding you. Always having it on every movement you make, every turning of your body and arm, picking anything up you move, the grinding of it into your skin is a continu- continuous reminder, is it not? You would never forget as long as you had that on. That's the nature of reminding yourself that I've done something wrong. Now, in this uncomfortable state you're supposed to theoretically be in, you might be fasting or praying or whatever you're doing, it's a continuous reminder that this is, this is where I should be in this, this state of, of, of mournful sorrow. That's a good thing to be. Because humans tend to forget quickly if, if, if we don't. And we have obviious examples of those who do things to remind themselves. Now, Messiah pointed out, hey, when you're fasting, don't you know, make a show of it, which we totally get that. I'm not arguing that you should make a show of it. We have example of the king during Elijah's day with the, the siege of Samaria. He had sackcloth under his royal robes and clothing. So no one knew that he was sorrowful, praying, and being miserable. Until he heard about the, the women with the, with the whole, you know, son, they boiled the son, ate, ate one, and the other one, she hid it. She couldn't, she couldn't eat that one. They almost complaining, hey, we killed once and ate mine, but she hid hers. Make her find her so we can kill and eat it too. And he was like, ah. He tore his clothing. He was so upset. And that's revealed the sackcloth. 
it was a shock. The king's wearing sackcloth. He's praying to God for repentance. How could this be? How could our ungodly king do such a thing? Well, it showed on the inside what the king was experiencing, trying to say, God, I've got, you've got to do something to save us. Of course, we have the story of Elijah and the, and the lepers and the whole, the Syrian army runs away and they all get lots of food. We, we know that story. It's, it's, in, it's in 2 Kings uh, 6, in case you're curious about it. So that's the nature of that story. But he did it internally, concealed amongst, amongst the outside. So he knew internally, with the sackcloth being covered up, he knew what he was doing and he was alone experiencing it. Make sure no one else knew. That's a big deal. So God appreciated, granted he was mad, the king did a few minor mistakes, but God appreciated the fact that he, he was willing to humble himself in that fashion. Not that everybody else knew he was humbling himself, but God knew he was humbling himself. And then by tearing his clothing, revealed to everybody else, he was humbling himself, which is a profound thing to do. So this nature of stripping your ornaments down to God to decide what do I do with you? How do I handle this, just this situation? And whether or not to make you live or allow you to live or die, then Moses interceding for the next 40 days, praying and continuously arguing with God, don't kill them, don't kill them, don't kill them. God finally relents. Fine, I won't kill them off. But whoever you're sitting against me, I'm going to write down, I'll, 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 make, I'll make payment for this later. So all of these stories, and it continues on, we didn't go beyond Exodus, there's more, there's more later on, and obviously previously all these stories focus on basically one fundamental concept your conduct our conduct what we do whether it's senses take how we reveal, reveal, reveal or talk or view other people um, how we keep ourselves clean or unclean in our actions what we do uh, whether or not it is what we worship or don't worship where our, our our internal sorrow when we screw up is what is it how do we do those how do we handle those scenarios it doesn't really matter what the subject subject matter is what we do matters, and God wrote, wrote them down. Now, in our Torah portion, we, I didn't cover all of it today. I'm going to end regarding this topic. I'm going to end it on this topic alone. We have a few basic things of which, where God distinguished himself and distinguishes us. You need to switch cameras to this other one, Jeff. Can you do that? Thank you, sir. This other camera we have. So, in the Kitisa, there are basic themes. Uh, some, of the, some of the basic fundamental themes here when it comes to conduct. Um, because, for example, in the other senses, we have money and uh, power. One of the, one of the, the first uh, early, early, early concepts when it comes to census uh, uh, is the same whether you're rich or poor. So money and power does not distinguish somebody who's valuable or, or not valuable. It is, there's regardless. You got money and power or no money and power. Rich or poor, you're all the same. It's equal. So we consider ourselves the same. It's one of the basic fundamental points we have discussing here in our Torah portion. Our second point we have discussed that's also talked about is washing yourself. Wash your hands and feet. Uh, that's, it's, it's when you approach God. Approach God. Himmanship's not really great. Sorry about that. So, because when you approach God, what is the one thing you don't want him to see? Your dirt and grime of your sins, your conduct, right? What is it? What do you do then? Clean up. Watch what you're doing. Clean up your messes. Clean yourself up. Now, okay, God, 
I've washed myself. I'm not the best. If I wash myself, I'm trying my best to clean myself before you cleanly. Now let's have a conversation. Now let's talk about what we can do to fix whatever the scenario is or handle whatever the situation is. We also have in our discussion here, another point was the prayers. My my board keeps moving on me. Prayers uh, with incense. Are they sweet or not? Am I a complainer or do I actually talk to God as I would want him to talk to me? Do I want God to complain about me? No, I don't. I don't want I don't want God to complain about me at all. To say, Daniel, why just screw up again? Do you want to hear that? No, I'm sure you don't. Well, you might have Daniel, your own name. Insert your name. Not <laughs> all mine, but insert your own name. You don't want to hear that from God, do you? Daniel, why don't you fix this? You know how to fix this. Why don't you fix it? What's wrong with you? You don't want those, right? So don't do it to God either. Doesn't appreciate that. Let's go back. We also have, he discusses, you will rest on Shabbat. Shabbat. Spell it. Excuse me quickly. Um, you will take your time off. You will not focus your own, your own needs or gains continuously. One day of the week, the seventh day in particular, you will rest. He also points out here in this Torah portion, you have no other gods. No. Oops, that's an N. Other gods. Uh, that includes idols, idolatry, which is inclusive of adultery, which is, as well as rebellion, which all of that includes within inside the context of you're losing your self-control. When you've lost your self-control, what happens? Oh, did I lose my camera? Oh, sorry about that. You lo- you're lose- losing your self-control. So, so the know where the gods is an important thing, which when you, if you've lost... You're, you're, if you start worshiping the God, you may worship who knows what. But if you if you are if you are maintaining your worship of your existing God, that means you you have have self control. That's an important concept. You want self control. I'm not saying you're perfect, but this is imperfection. We're saying just temper what we do and how we handle ourselves. All these are conduct things, by the way. These are how we handle, how we live our lives. We also have this Torah portion to intercede, as Moses did. Intercede. Six. Intercede. Is it, S, is it C-E-E-D? C-E-D. Oh, I already spelled intercede. I'm going to misspell it, so I don't, I'm going to spell intercede. Um, interceding on behalf of those who don't necessarily need or don't necessarily deserve it. The idea of interceding on behalf of someone else. So because Moses did so, Abraham did so, Messiah did so, what does that tell us what we should do? We should do so. And he'd force someone else. For, who doesn't necessarily deserve it. They may not deserve intercession. Do it anyway. For others. We also have in our Torah portion, our conduct here, uh, in, in the c- case of when you, when you are repenting, be, it, it, I, I, I've reworded here uh, to, to not forget or be persistent in, in your process of repentance. Persistent or, or honest. We are honest or persistent. Well, these were honest. Honest in your, in, your, in, your, in your repentance. We also have, we have acknowledging uh, that the, the, the God, when he, when he talks about himself, said, hey, this is who I am. And God said, this is who I am. I'm forgiving and kind and loving all those, all those great things. Acknowledging who God is. 
over your own personal life and over the scenario that you're in. Because obviously, because Moses points out that God, hey, you'd, you write, if you're going to erase them from your book, erase my name too. The same principle, erase them both if need, if need be, but don't erase, don't, don't erase just them, erase me too. So the God's, God is the one who decides, God decides, uh, who, who's going to forgive? And it's important, one concept, the idea of forgiveness is acknowledge that God makes these decisions. Realize he decides that we don't. And our failures are not relevant on his decision. So for example, if I have, hey, God, I need, you know, Job, Job Blow, number seven, he's a best friend. He really needs forgiveness, God. You got to forgive him and God chooses not to forgive him. Well, but I interceded, I asked for help, I asked to forgive him and, and God, you're forgiving and God chose not to forgive him. Well, guess what? Sometimes not forgiveness is a blessing. And don't complain about it. <laughs> don't complain about it. So that forgiveness, but God is the one who decides who's going to forgive because he said, I'll forgive who I'm going to forgive. I will have blessing. For, have blessing one. He, he describes himself that way. So acknowledge he decides these things. We can ask, we can request, but he's the deciding component. He's the one who decides who's going to forgive, who's not going to forgive. And of course, he also points out in, in, in a Torah portion here today to separate yourselves from the world around you. I use it. We didn't talk about that much at all, but it does point out in the Torah portion when you have that, when it says the old daughters, you'll have with their sons, don't, don't, don't intermarry with the people around you. Don't interact with them in this capacity. They will, they will take from you. you will, they will make you go astray, go astray. Don't intermingle because what happens with your conduct when you intermingle with those with poor conduct? Your conduct becomes poor, right? And conduct matters. So we watch out who we interact with. This, this matters as far as how God is concerned. And of course, at the very end with Moses, after he finish, finishes his conversa- conversation with God, God finally relents. Okay, I will not send my angel for you. I'll go instead, even though I might kill you all, I'll go ahead and be in your presence. You can then live with me. At the very end of all these different things, 10, you get to live with God. That's the end result. So if we watch our conduct through all these different various things, and I, these are just examples. There's lots more in our Torah portion. I mean, we're just discussing this one portion before we talk about. All different lists, whether it's, it's, it's equal, people are equal to each other, uh, watch, keep yourself clean when you approach God, make sure your prayers are sweet, rest in Shabbat, don't have other gods, and don't lose your self-control, of course. Intercede for others, being honest in your repentance, acknowledge that God decides who to forgive, who does not forgive. Separate yourself from others who have poor conduct. And as a result, what's the end result? God will be with you. God dwells with you. It's a good thing, but it requires some basic fundamentals. And God doesn't play around with fundamentals. So do your fundamentals, and you'll do pretty well. Yes, Larry. Sorry, you keep interrupting. That's all right. The... Uh that reminds me that since the, separate from others, one of the other things I think is on the Mishnah, some places said the Jews kept the Sabbath, but the Sabbath kept the Jews. Right. Because they were always different, so they stayed together as a cohesive group. You're absolutely right. That, 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 that uh, connection, as God points out multiple places, not multiple different ways. Uh, there's, but there's other things that God put it here in, in 
uh, in chapter 34 as far as how did you keep the, the holidays and, and how you, the, the inclusive of keeping Shabbat, he lists here also includes, you know, redeeming your sons, keeping your, your Shavuot, keeping Sukkot, keeping Passover. Keep, that's all, all inclusive of what it means to rest on Shabbat. If Shabbat is an inclusive of all the holiday cycle, we, the Torah covers that many, many, many times. But that resting on those days, those days keep you just as much as you keep them. They distinguish you separate. That's one of the methodologies which you keep separate from everybody around you. How many of have friends and family and loved ones who don't keep any of the holidays? A lot. Almost everybody have somebody. Many people are families or someone who knows. They have no interest in God. Have no interest in Shabbat either. Yeah, I know some of them. But I'm related to them. Well, what do I do about it? Well, it's not my job to do anything. My job is to intercede on their behalf and make sure I stay separate from that way of life. Not to isolate myself and never interact with them. We're not discussing separate is not that way. It's how you conduct yourself, how you live, what you do, what example you show to people around you and your loved ones and your families. These conduct things is how God measures us by. So if I'm going to measure my conduct, mind you, it's not shocking to measure my conduct. How many of us Bless, correct, or honor our kids when they conduct good or conduct poorly. We always correct our kids. I don't do that. That's against the rules. You don't get to hit so-and-so. <laughs> you don't get to steal and throw it in the trash can and flush the toilet down. And, and you can do those types of things. Just stop fighting. We correct them for that. Or, wow, that was really nice of you. You helped so-and-so clean up this, this mess that, you, that, that she or he made. And you helped and you volunteered your own time. You showed kindness to somebody else that we praise them for it so we do that for our own children instinctively as we 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 reward good behavior and condemn or correct poor behavior and what is the end result hopefully speaking when they get older they'll know what is to what it means to conduct good behavior what does it mean to conduct poor behavior and they'll choose good behavior that's what we're hoping for well why would we expect god to be any different does he not want us to have good behavior? So reward good behavior? Now he decides what is and what is not a reward. Because we've all experienced God's corrections, and actually they were blessings to get those corrections. We've all experienced them. So like, I didn't want to be this, this corrected this way. But when he came out the other end, I was like, oh, that was actually a good thing I did it. A good thing that happened to me. I have a greter understanding of God. It, having gone through that correction. The correction was, in fact, a blessing. Those are good things. They're hard things. They're still good things. Those trials we go through. So these are not bad things to go through, even though they were, however they end up or however they, they, they go through our own personal lives. But our conduct is not, should not shock anybody that your conduct matters to God. It does. Just like the conduct of your family matters to you. The conduct of yourself matters to you. What you do. Now, I'm not saying your thoughts aren't important, Greeks. <laughs> they also will affect your conduct if you let the thoughts run unchecked. You let the thoughts to lose their self-control. But your self-control is what we use to watch our conduct. That's a good, positive thing. We don't want to be like the people who had Aaron make the golden calf. We don't want to lose our own self-control. I'm not saying any of us have. The point is that in life, we've seen that happen. We've experienced it in our pasts. We've, lost, we've all lost self-control at some point, or in some cases, many, many times. 
that the, the self-control is a valuable thing to have and have restraint on it. I've had to exercise self-control recently. We all have. Every day, every week, whatever, how often it be. Self-control, nope, I'm not going to do that. Or yes, I'm going to do this even though I don't want to because it's the right thing to do. That self-control is how we, how we demonstrate our God and good behavior to others around us. And God likes that. He advocates for that. That's a good thing. Any questions or comments regarding the Torah portion? We're going to conclude with this topic today. When you said separate yourself from the world around you, it reminds me like on Sukkot, do people go back to work during those work days? We should not do that if we're demonstrating uh, that we're under God's control. Um, also, a lot of Christians will say those things are ceremonial laws. They should be done away with and they are done away with. I'm thinking, where did they get the idea that there's something diminutive about the ceremonial laws because those things that are done in heaven uh, will be significant in the future. That's true. So in, 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 in the concept of the belief that laws or things are done with, it, it messes up when we as in English use the term law to describe the Torah, it's, it's, it, we, we, we think in, intuitively as, oh, it's a negative thing, a harsh thing, we don't want those things. But in reality, the word Torah doesn't truly mean law per se. It's instruction. So if I say instructions are done away with, and I, if I give you uh, a, 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 let's say you don't know. Uh, let's see, if I give you a, um, a new piece of machinery you've never seen before, imagine what it is, just think of it. But I give you zero instructions. I say, oh, you don't need it. Instructions are done away with. Just use it. Um, What's going to happen? <laughs> You're not going to do so well, are you? Will you probably break it or cause wreck on something? Cause, oops, I didn't realize you pushed this button. What is that? Oh, I, it just became a paperweight. <laughs> My new piece of machinery is now a paperweight because I pushed the wrong button at the wrong time. Without the instructions, you're going to screw it up because you won't know how to do it. How do I do this? So Torah is more, although it includes law as far as corrections, it's dominantly is, is instruction. So you say, well, if I replace the word law in English with instruction, well, the instructions are done away with. What does that conjure up in our heads? The instructions are gone. (laughs) My teacher is gone. How to do something is now gone. Well, we would say, well, no, no, we we, we need instructions. We need how how, how to do something. If we use the term instruction for Torah, it gives us a, well, I will obviously would hold on to it because I need the instructions. But Torah truly is more instruction than actual law because it points out to, here's your minimum and maximum limits on any given scenario, but it points that now you apply mercy when it, when it is appropriate. The Torah tells us to do that. So mercy is appropriate time, but here are your limits. You can't go beyond this on these corrections or these, these, these mistakes, these good things, whatever it may be. You also can't go lower than this. So, so there's a minimum, maximum limit that Torah gives us. Work within there, but you have to apply mercy when necessary. So it's, it's an instruction, a, a min-max type of thing about what we do, but you have to then apply, well, do I go the extreme on one end or the other, or I have to do something else because something else, some extraneous circumstance changed it. So they are instructions to how to handle given scenarios. So I would never say, well, I don't think any Christian would say, the instructions are done away with. There's nothing we can do that's right or wrong anymore because the instructions are all gone. 
Well, you're going to have really messed up equipment when you're all done. God says, what did you do with a wreck of, of all this life I gave you? You wrecked it. <laughs> yes, Alex. As far as the prayers uh, being complaining or otherwise, you know, I'm forever griping about my former church. Every now and then the minister or priest would say, during the prayers, oh, country's never been so divided. God, could you help us out here? And I cringe. I go, well, that's, that's not the prayers of the people because that's not my prayer. I, I don't think the Republicans and the Democrats being divided is really it's, it's, so it's bad. Not rele- it's not relevant. It's, that's a good it's thing. It's more <laughs> like the tribe over the hill that's about to come down and slaughter yeah. your whole tribe. Yeah. That was a concern. <laughs> Could you help us out here, guys? Yeah. I mean, and those, it, those it just makes needs. me cringe. Yeah. He said it more than once. Oh, I'm sure like, he has, yeah. Ugh. Yeah, the, 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 and I've got my issues with, with, with politicians and such too, which I, I, have, I have to keep to myself because I'll, I'll get too upset by it. And, and I'll wind up making myself sick and so mad at some, some, some person did something or continues to do something awful. And I, okay, you're a terrible human being for whatever, meaning not I mean your conduct, terrible conduct of, of what you're doing. And keep in check, reality is that person, whether they want, I choose what I'm going to do. I choose what life I'm going to live. I decide to follow a rotten individual or follow a good individual. I choose what God has listed me to. This is how you will live. I measure my, I have to remember, keep my focus down on my own life, not the person in doing this or person doing that or who's in charge of this, how much money so-and-so spends on that and how many people have died because they're a con. It's not my business. God is not ignorant of each person's behavior, right? He's not, he's not he's unaware. Just because sometimes we get a glimpse into how awful certain people's behaviors have been and are, bit, are, and are that's because we now find out about it. But God's not about it the whole time. That he doesn't know. He may choose to reveal, or says, no, you don't need to know that behavior. It's not relevant to your life. Focus on your own life, as you put out. Focus on the tribe over the hill. The, one, the, ne- the next door neighbor, the, ne- the mob next door. Focus on your immediate, what's, what's around me. Uh, don't focus on that's beyond me. I don't need to worry about what Washington does. I don't worry about what Sacramento does. I don't worry about it. What it, it they're going to do what they're going to do, and I choose to obey or not obey. I can, I can say, no, I won't do it, or yes, I will do it, whatever the case may be. That's my decision. But the reality is, that's their life, and that's what they do, and that's their only function for life, and that's fine. It's not my function for life. I had to keep that in check. I'm, we're all guilty. We get caught up in a news, or news, news article or whatever. Like, oh, how awful that is or oh, how great that is. Reality is, does it actually affect me? Almost always the answer is no. And well, they made some new law, but well, it doesn't actually change what I do. Okay. <laughs> I made some new restriction. Well, I don't do that anyway, so it doesn't make a difference. Right? <laughs> there's, there's all these scenarios these terrible things they do, but reality is my life hasn't changed. So what am I worried about? God still has always been a path. Now, when I've told my wife many times, when the path is blocked, we find a new way. We don't continue on. But as long as the path's still there, path's still there. God still makes a way. When he blocks a path, I know he's closed the door. I need to move on. But that's, those are the types of which we have our personal lives to work with. But not to get too off into, you know, theoretical, you know, politics, but that's just how, you know, 
life works. Any comments or questions regarding our Torah portion we covered today, our discussion of topic or, or issues? We'll conclude with a prayer then. Almighty God, our great Father, thank you for our Shabbat day of rest, a day of praise and worship and study that we will focus our attention upon you and not upon us and the world around us. Father, help us to follow good conduct, to follow the way which you wish for us to follow and to live, and to live according to your way of life. That you were in charge, Father, it is your, this is your creation. You've created it, and whatever man does, Father, you are still fully aware. We ask you will bless us and help us to, to be separate from those who are have poor conduct to help us, Father, to, to walk a good path, whatever that path leads. We ask you to bless us in the balance of our time. We praise you, Father, and ask your blessing in Yeshua's name. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Halal.info.